This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward. Welcome to the Legislature Today, I'm Randy Yoey. This is the ninth day of the 60-day 2024 regular session. In the House today, a bill to help those with dementia and their families heads to the Senate, and whether authorities should release mugshots has sparked some controversy. A bill that creates a purple alert system for missing cognitively impaired persons, House Bill 4190, passed the House third reading by a 95-0 vote. The alert uses video image recording devices to search for the person missing and provides for notice and broadcasting of a purple alert. A proposed law that prohibits the release of mugshots of people arrested for a crime until they are convicted was debated yesterday in the House Judiciary Committee. House Bill 4621 was advanced to the House floor. Right now, mugshots are released to the public after a person is simply charged with a crime. The bill sponsor, Delegate Jeff Foster, a Republican from Putnam County, says some mugshot releases can lead to shame and worse for those with mental illness. He also points out in many cases, releasing a mugshot before conviction is morally unfair. In many cases, it's just hard for somebody to get a job, especially if you've got a professional license degree of some sort. And it may be a complete false accusation, but if they're arrested based on it, then that, that mugshot's out there forever. And then we also eliminated like these pay sites. So what they'll do is they'll hold your picture for ransom, which is a terrible thing. Delegate Brandon Steele, a Republican from Raleigh County, opposes the bill. Steele says as an attorney, it's helpful to know what a client looks like when they're in jail. And he says it's vital to have the ability to inform the public what a jailed person suspected of a crime looks like. Well, let's face facts. Down there in Beckley, where I'm at, how many deaths have we had over the last year in our regional jail? People need to know the faces of who's in there. That's for their protection. At any point in time that your government starts hiding who they're jailing, I would be highly suspicious of what they're doing. The mugshot bill now goes to the House floor for continued debate. Today was Rural Health Care Day at the Capitol. Many health care providers and health advocacy organizations were at the Capitol to discuss challenges and advocate for possible solutions in rural health care. Brianna Heaney has more. Transportation is one major challenge in the health care system, especially for elderly residents. Karen O'Dell, communication and leadership strategist for Southern West Virginia Health System, says lack of access to any public transportation and access to preventative care are contributors to health outcomes in rural areas. If you are an individual who is single, living by themselves, and do not have a family member or maybe a neighbor who can assist, when you go to have a specialist procedure that requires somebody to drive you, you may not seek that specialist care. And we know that if we have um, a positive reaction to doing various health screenings, that that creates a positive uh, lifespan. 
Um, and if you can't get to the colonoscopy because you don't have anybody who can assist you with that going to and from, you're not going to get that life-saving uh, screening. Rihanna Wiseman, customer service representative for West Virginia Intervention Institute, says rural health care is key to combating the opioid epidemic in the state. They deal with the smaller things, and that's the most important things is the smaller things. Those are the things that lead to big things. So when in recovery, anything, anything that anybody can provide, I mean, from um, just support to, you know, like dental plans or um, drug prevention or recovery. She says having access to opioid reversal agents like naloxone is especially needed for rural communities where wait times for ambulances are longer. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. We're now more than a week into the session and bills have started to move through their respective committees. The Education Committee of both chambers are addressing financial issues in the state schools. Chris Schultz has that story. Many of the bills taken up and passed by the Education Committees of both chambers this week may seem familiar. That's because most of them also passed Education Committees last year, only to founder in finance. The House Education Committee took up issues of educator pay at their meeting Wednesday. House Bill 4202 would raise salaries for school service personnel by $670 per month and was recommended to pass. House Bill 4767 raises the salaries of new teachers with no experience to $44,000. A similar bill, Senate Bill 204, passed out of the Senate Education Committee last year but did not make it out of finance. House Education Committee Chair Delegate Joe Ellington, Republican from Mercer County, said the two bills would make positions in West Virginia more competitive with neighboring states. Of note, that also brings up to the 50th percentile of our surrounding states. Governor Jim Justice already announced plans to raise the pay of all state employees, including teachers and school staff, by 5% this year. Legislative leaders have indicated their support for the raise, but union leaders and other advocates say the raise isn't enough to address rising PEIA premiums, let alone bigger issues of teacher retention. Related to the teacher shortage, a bill that attempts to define and limit the role of school counselors drew much discussion. House Bill 4769 aims to narrowly define the duties of school counselors, something Delegate David Elliott Pritt, a Republican from Fayette County, said is necessary. I actually had a, a lunch meeting with a couple counselors uh, that work in the county that I represent, and these counselors have over 300 unanswered counseling referrals because they're being asked to fill in the role of teacher in positions that no long-term or short-term day-to-day sub will take. And it's a problem. And these are counseling referrals that could be potential suicide risk, abuse from a parent or guardian, you know, anything. And they're unanswered because they're being asked to fulfill other duties. This feels incredibly important. I'm happy to support it. And I'm honestly very glad that we're readdressing this this year. Thank you all very much. All five of the bills discussed were recommended to the House for passage. On the Senate side, the Education Committee Thursday morning took up a bill regarding the Promise Plus program, Senate Bill 259. First established in 2001, the Promise Scholarship is a merit-based academic award that pays in-state tuition and fees, or $5,000, whichever is less, at any eligible institution in West Virginia. The Promise Plus program would act as a supplement for individuals who meet more rigorous standards so that the total of both scholarships is equal to the actual cost of tuition. 
Senator Mike Oliverio, a Republican from Monongalia County, voiced his opposition to what he called the bill's held hostage provision, which would require recipients of Promise Plus funds to pay the state back if they left the state after graduation. I think the approach would better be to increase the amount of money that we give to all of the Promise Scholarship recipients and continue to not have a held hostage provision over them and and really live by that concept of, of, as a state, we should train and educate our next generation, and if they leave, so be it. Maybe they'll come back. But if we don't train and educate them and they stay, we have a lot of problems. The senators also discussed bills to require age-appropriate education on the Holocaust, as well as the development of an education program to teach safety while accessing technology. All three bills were recommended to the Senate for passage. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Lawmakers continue to search for solutions to the continuing state of emergency in West Virginia's jails and prisons. Now, correctional leaders say jail guard vacancies are being filled, facility conditions are being addressed, the National Guard is on drawdown, and a new culture of accountability is taking shape as lawsuits and investigations continue. I prepared this package last month looking at the problems and progress in writing a still-listing Department of Corrections ship. On the state capitol steps, Corrections Commissioner William Marshall is fronting a corrections officer recruitment video. Marshall says legislated pay raises, locality pay, and a recruitment effort focused on a younger age group has helped reduce 2023 jail guard vacancies from 1,067 to 853. He says a new policy giving guard recruits on-the-job experience right after meeting basic requirements has paid off. So if you send them straight to the academy right off the street, and then they hit the facility floor, they're like, hey, this is not what I, uh, I signed up for, this is not what I expected, and we lose them, well, we've wasted about $20,000 in six weeks in training them. So this has really made a difference. Legislated pay raises enacted in 2023 largely went to the frontline correction officers. Delegate Joey Garcia, a Democrat from Marion County and House Jails and Prison Committee member, says many middle management corrections workers felt slighted that their raises were not in the thousands of dollars. When you look at people who are CO3s, CO4s, who um, they didn't really receive any raise other than maybe a $250 incentive this year, and you have people that have been correctional officers for just a couple years. And so you have two years versus 15 years, 16 years, and now they're making about the same amount of money. And, and I think that it, there's a respect factor there. Marshall says the pay raises addressed a specific emergency vacancy need, and that was the legislative focus. He told lawmakers in December that jail and prison overcrowding was reduced in several facilities, but many remained overcapacity by the dozens or hundreds. Some notion involving reducing West Virginia's jail and prison overcrowding relates not to what goes on behind the fences and walls, but reforms involving the court system and the legislature. Garcia says examining bail reform and a stronger emphasis on substance abuse treatment could keep many people out of jail that don't belong there. We'll just put in a position where they're going to be on the, the, the pathway to becoming uh, a better citizen and, and, and you can still hold people accountable while at the same time making sure there's public safety is, is improved. Marshall says he will support any reforms agreed upon to help reduce jail overcrowding. 
we've, we've had good productive meetings with, uh, with individuals from the Supreme Court, uh, as well as uh, you know, the Prosecutors Association and, and the magistrates. Uh, we've had good communication with them. We, we've had, uh, they, they've got good ideas in place. Beckley attorney Stephen New represents jail inmates in both individual and class action lawsuits. Inmates alleging inhumane jail conditions, cruel treatment, and wrongdoing cover-up. He agrees that social reforms would reduce a burgeoning jail population. We need to be thinking outside the box. We need to be thinking of alternative sentences. We need to be thinking of bail reform, things that can be done uh, with nonviolent offenders. A big part of the reason for the recidivism here is these people can't get state-issued identification cards. Therefore, they can't get jobs. Therefore, they can't pay their bills. Many of New's inmate client allegations of inhumane treatment center on 2021 conditions at the Southern Regional Jail just outside Beckley. He says a combination of overcrowding, understaffing, and overdue maintenance helped create an unconstitutionally deplorable habitat. That demonstrated in a number of the cells the leaky faucets, uh, showers inoperable, toilets that did not work. And so we were able to verify in the time frame that our clients were telling us these awful conditions. Marshall would not respond to questions on lawsuits and investigations. He told lawmakers in December that $60 million in jail and prison maintenance funding was focused on fixing or replacing a long and varied list of what was broken or worn out. The biggest part about that has been our communication. Our communication throughout our ranks and our supervision, accountability, transparency. Uh, we have more oversight and more people in our facilities now than ever before. New says he understands the conditions have improved and there's a work in progress. He says there's still a long way to go. Uh, there is still a correctional officer and staffing shortage of 850. Uh, there still needs to be about $200 million of maintenance spent in the 32 correctional facilities in the state of West Virginia. And some of the facilities like North Central are still overcrowded. Until those conditions are fixed, uh, the inmates' rights aren't being met. The United States Attorney for West Virginia's Southern District, Will Thompson, says he's concerned there may be a cover-up culture at the Southern Regional Jail, involving several guards who are charged with beating an inmate to death or covering it up. New says one inmate lawsuit shows how that culture was exemplified by a woman's jail gang, the A8 Gladiators, who allegedly colluded with guards and terrorized other inmates. In notes that I have reviewed from the Rose case, those gang leaders in the A8 pod uh, would have sex with the guards, would uh, traffic in contraband, and get the guards, the COs, compromised, and then be able to do certain things uh, that they wanted to do. There was absolutely a cover-up culture at the Southern Regional Jail, it in, and it went to the highest levels. In response to the cover-up culture question, Marshall would only say he was concentrating on a present and future corrections culture of overall reform. I want to be able to learn from, from our past and, and learn from things that we've, uh, we've seen in the, in the past. And I want to move forward with what we're doing uh, and uh, try to prevent things, uh, things from going sideways again.
We have a lot of things that are important to our culture, such as transparency and responsibility and, and uh, you know, uh, communication and, and even love for one another and, and, and treating each other like brothers and sisters rather than just employees and peers. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. Earlier today, I sat down with forensic psychologist Dr. David Clayman and Senate Jails and Prisons Committee co-chair Senator Jason Barrett to talk about the diversion of certain persons from the criminal justice system. I think this is a very interesting topic today and we have two people to talk about diversion. With me is forensic psychologist Dr. David Clayman and the co-chair of the Senate Committee on Jails and Prisons, Senator Jason Barrett. Gentlemen, thank you for being here today. Pleasure. Let's start out by talking about Senate Bill 232 that passed last year. And I'm just going to read right here. It called for creating a multidisciplinary study group to make recommendations regarding the diversion of persons with mental illness, developmental disabilities, cognitive disabilities, substance abuse problems, and other disabilities from the criminal justice system. David, you're the chair of this study group, keeping people out of the criminal justice system. Talk about what your study group's goals are in this makeup. We have an ongoing problem of one is revolving doors within the prison system and in the mental health system that people just keep coming back. And people are, in the four groups we're looking at, are often put in prison or put in jail because we have no place else to put them. I'm using the word put too many times, but that's what we talk about. And on the surface, it would seem to be simple. One is build a bigger hospital, two is put some other facilities in the communities. But what we've, we've learned now in the first year, and we just finished it, is that it goes deeper than that. Forensics touches so many different places depending upon where you're talking about it. So we have a six-stage model that we were used from other states, which is kind of, I didn't even know what it was when I started. And the first stage is an interesting one because it's a zero contact with the court system or with the criminal justice system. So we are now with mental hygiene commissioners, police, magistrates, everybody that is not part of the adjudicator or the, the prison system itself, jails or, or prisons. And we start there and then the last stage is when they get out of prison or out of jail, what do we do to make they don't go back? So diversion means coming up with ways to either prevent them from coming in or prevent them from coming back. Senator Barrett, um, talk about overcrowding a little bit and what you see as some of the problems and solutions. Sure, I appreciate the question, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the chair of the Jails and Prisons Committee uh, in the Senate, uh, the Interim Committee. I serve as the co-chair along with uh, Delegate Kelly in the House. Uh, and we've had um, Commissioner Marshall with D uh, Department of Corrections uh, Rehabilitation in our committee uh, numerous times. And I think that you look at, at the drug problem that this state has, that is certainly a driving factor while we, while we have so many people in our, our facilities. Uh, but really, we've uh, you know, called on, Secretary, on Commissioner Marshall, and I think uh, he has done a good job of trying to improve conditions um, in our facilities even though we had this overcrowding problem and it's something that that legislative oversight committee uh, is very mindful of and, and you know we ask the tough questions to ensure that that the folks are treated uh, properly uh, in our facilities but but I come back to the drug problem I think is is the largest driving factor as to why we have so much overcrowding so I know that you guys want you and know, you develop this committee this study group and you want to see them have something that comes to fruition to maybe divert people from having to go into the criminal justice system and finding another direction. Dr. Clayman, there's a couple of places, I mean, your study group found that there's a number of 
community groups that are working fine, that, that, that have uh, rehabilitation, treatment, and so on and so forth, but there's some problems, there's some problems with technicalities, data sharing, uh, uh, connectivity, and the big elephant in the room funding. Yes, and, and what we found is pockets of people that are doing wonderful things, um, crisis intervention training or, or critical incident training, um, we have pockets there, but they don't talk to each other, so we don't have a system in place right now. We have no community-based diversion programs for the acutely distressed, whether it be IDD or whatever else. We also don't have good definition of the populations we're addressing. That is a big deal. IDD waiver, intellectual and developmental disabilities, can be autism, it can be a whole bunch of other things, head injuries. and. So IDD is not just one thing, neither is substance abuse, neither are working with kids. So, so what we've looked at is what's working, what's transferable, what can we do to coalesce things, what special interest groups, police, judiciary, prosecutors, public defenders, they're all involved in this so that we address the civil rights of the individuals who are in our, cr our criminal justice system that really don't belong there probably by law but the public safety as well. So we've got two real driving forces to protect the community, but also consider the civil rights of the individuals who yeah. might have them violated. Public safety is an important part of it. And, and Senator Barrett, I know Senator Stewart in, in the, your committee brought up the fact of, of needing a balance. Let's try to divert as many as we can that maybe aren't gonna harm the public mm -hmm. that don't need to be in jail or prison. On the other hand, we don't want to let anybody out that would be a danger to the public. So there's a balance here, isn't there? There's absolutely a balance, and I think that that's uh, an incredible point that, that was made by Senator Stewart, that you know we need to make sure that public safety is number one. Uh, and then also that, as the doctor mentioned, um, that, the, that, that the individual is protected and their civil rights are, are protected. So I think it's something that the legislature is, is very well aware of. Uh, we certainly appreciate the doctor's work on on the study group uh, as we move forward. Uh, I think that we found that it's a bigger problem than, than a lot of folks realize. I think that you'll see legislation that uh, that asks the study group to come back to the legislature on a, on a routine basis. I think that you'll see maybe a member of, of both the House and the Senate uh, take an, an active role uh, with the group uh, to ensure that we get good policy for, for the folks of West Virginia. And, and you, I, I used an interesting term. You said you, weren't, you guys weren't Pollyanna-ish about this. No, and really you do, you're very concerned with that balance as well, so but let's not go into that. Let's clip off a couple of things that may actually help with diversion. I thought this statewide crisis stabilization centers. You mentioned uh, this uh, mental health, mental hygiene officers, and so on and so forth. It always happens at two in the morning on the weekend. It's it's just a, a pain. Um, Talk about these crisis stabilization centers and how, right off the bat, if we had those statewide, it could help. Well, we've the number one thing that came up across all populations was if they come into the system, if they're getting ready to enter, we have no place else to put them. I'm going to give you an example. Right off the bat, right when they're arrested. Right when they're arrested. And if they're intoxicated, when we used to have an alcohol treatment place in South Charleston, they could dry out then. But if you have an IDD person, intellectually developmentally disabled autistic person, who has acted out, and the acts look criminal, but they're not criminal intent. Can we put them somewhere where they can calm down, we can stabilize them, and then use that time to come up with a good treatment plan? And it's, it's so complicated, Randy, that, that we're working to make it simpler and make people understand that 
I'm chair of another committee, which is the Dangerous Assessment Advisory Board, which is was put into place, and that's where 232 came from. And that from. one's a mouthful. Well, yes, DAB, it's easier. <laughs> and what our job is, and I think Senator knows this, is our job is that when somebody is being released from the hospital, specifically the hospital now, although our scope is bigger, a judge may, or a court officer may, refer the case to our Dangerous Assessment Advisory Board, and we can make an advisory opinion whether to let them go. So the safety part is always there. So the big picture, Senator Barrett, looks to me like we talk about these uh, crisis stabilization programs, which sounds like they, they would work. Uh, step downs, transitional living, group homes, what we've heard about all along is diversionary places. There's two things that this committee needs to get it done, is time and funding. I mean, how do you find the funding to have a statewide network to really work and let these community groups that are working mm -hmm. well right now uh, get even better and get less people into jail? How do you find the money? Sure. Well, I mean, you start with grants, and, and you know that's that's tough. And I, you know, I've realized the the, the study groups, uh, you know, concern with grants and not having grant writers on staff and um, drawing down federal money. Um, you look at the state's budget. And I've served on the finance committee for a number of years in both the House and the Senate. Um, don't serve on there any longer, uh, but. It's you know it's about prioritizing spending, and certainly from the governor's state of the state, there is a lot of spending um, uh, in his proposed budget. Uh, I think that you'll see the legislature from both the House and the Senate Finance Committees and their chairman uh, really to to prioritize where our spending uh, it best serves the people of West Virginia. And that's what one of your committee members, Dr. Snyder, or Mr. Snyder, I mean, right. talked about two things: time and funding. There at, at the end of the last presentation, and I saw. Um, what kind of funding do you need to get the ball rolling? Well, we can do demonstration projects. We need some staff. But we're really working on cooperative arrangements, open, transparent, cooperative arrangements. We're not, we're not political. We're not by any department. We stand on our own. We would like to be able to have the money to have staff to work together, to put a tri couple trial balloons up there to show that we're cost effective. The big deal is, is it cheaper to have somebody in the community in the right setting, or is it better to have them in prison. So I know that you're going to work on this throughout the year at the end of 2024. You're going to have a final presentation. Another one. I know you're crossing your fingers and everybody's crossing our fingers that we can do something to divert the people that don't belong in jails and prisons. And that's where this stands right now. We'll follow this as it moves along. And thank you so much for spending this time with us. Join us next time and every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. for continuing coverage of the 2024 legislative session on the legislature today. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting covers the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia Channel. I'm Randy Yoey. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward.